What are you laughing at? Laffy Taffy. They have a funny joke on every wrapper, and I love how fruity they are. Banana's my favorite. Want one? Sure. Mmm, so smooth and creamy. I like to eat them after school and after dinner and after... Whenever you need a good LOL? Yeah. So, here's the joke. What do clouds wear under their shorts? Thunderpants. That is good. <laughs> <laughs> Laffy Taffy. Deliciously funny. Head to LaffyTaffy.com to shop now. Auto insurance can all seem the same until it comes time to use it. So don't get stuck paying more for less coverage. Switch to USA Auto Insurance and you could start saving money in no time. Get a quote today. Restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Lyrically was a problem for me. Mm-hmm. And when I read the lyric, I go, no, you're doubling down on misogyny. You're talking about S&M crap, right? Yep. And I argue with the manager. And I said, we're going to have a problem. In England, they censored it. The biggest mistake we ever made, I feel, we had two Grammy nominations, Best Song and Best New Artist. And for some reason, Doug and our manager says, well, you know, it's an award show, right? no big deal. And I was Chris Ball. Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, one of the most recognizable bass lines of all time has to be this. Instantly recognizable as being My Sharona by The Knack. That was the biggest selling song in America in 1979 and was a number one hit all over the world. The album it came from, Get The Knack, was also a massive hit. Number one in the US for five weeks. It went platinum in a matter of months. Now, the guy who played that famous bass line and can now probably play it in his sleep is Prescott Niles. And I caught up with him just a couple of days ago. And honestly, what a great guest he was. He was out gigging until 3am and then got up to speak with me at midday, his time over in the US, to accommodate me being about 8pm here in the UK. Now, he spoke for an hour and a half as well. Very open, very honest and very detailed about his career, especially the ups and the downs of the band. Now, at the back end of the 70s, there was almost a bidding war, a frenzy around who could sign these guys up. They'd built their reputation rapidly as a force gig in in LA with some incredible big name pals who joined them on stage. And you're going to hear those stories as well coming up very, very soon indeed all before they were even signed up to a big label. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing this interview today. But firstly, as ever, I'm going to give a couple of quick hellos and shout outs. Make sure that you're following Vintage Rock Pod on all the social media channels. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. So give us a like, follow or subscribe to get involved on those channels. So with Niles being on this week's show, the main topic of conversation on the Vintage Rock Pod social media this week surrounded some of the other big albums of 1979. Now, I often offered up ACDC's Highway to Hell, 
Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, The Clash with London Calling, and Pink Floyd's The Wall. And I asked you, which of the four was your favourite and why? Now, on Twitter, Jack Fuber went for Tusk, saying it's a double album with a lot of great songs on it. I also seen this tour twice back then, so one could say I lived it and loved it. Mark Reynolds on Facebook also went for Tusk, saying it's criminally underrated compared to rumours. Now, Joey Michaud went for London Calling by The Clash, saying lots of great songs showing the band's growing influences in rockabilly, ska, reggae, etc. Gert Jan Sweep also agrees with London Calling, as does Kingsley Samuelson, but he also offered up Dynasty by Kiss as his favourite album of 1979. ACDC's Highway to Hell was a popular choice, of course. Stephen Ball, Craig Bessett both opting for that one, and Joe Trefoletti saying Highway to Hell by a long shot. Jokal Borhi was split saying Highway to Hell when he was partying with his drinking buddies, and The Wall when he was at home partying with his stoner friends. Mike Norris was also torn on those two albums, but edged for Pink Floyd's The Wall purely for Comfortably Numb. Alan Tanabe was similar, saying, I'll take The Wall, just edging out Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell absolutely rocks, but the sombre complexity of the cynical lyrics combined with brilliant sounds is the reason I would choose The Wall. Sammy Peterman and Jorge Amarillo both backing The Wall too. Another choice, though, came in from Stephen Welsh, who offered up the police's Regatta de Blanc, saying, For me, it's an album without a single duff track. An absolutely fantastic album. Probably my all-time favourite. Also, the first album I ever bought. But I think Patrick O'Brien, he summed it up brilliantly by saying, It was a great year for rock music. Hear, hear, Patrick. So back to this great year for rock music and one of the biggest groups of the year, The Knack. The band, classic lineup made up of Prescott on bass, Burton Avert on lead guitar, Bruce Gary on drums and Doug Figer on the vocals and guitar. Now, as I said earlier, they absolutely burst onto the scene and they achieved levels of success that they could probably never have imagined. But there were a lot of things which went against the band too. Choices by management and certain band members, critics who love to tear people down and the pressure of trying to repeat the success of My Sharona. Now, Prescott talks through all these issues candidly and in depth, and it's a fantastically open interview. So I really hope you enjoy this brilliant chat with him. It may shed some light onto a lot of things that happened back then too. So here you go, the knack bass player, Prescott Niles. Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Prescott. I mean, incredible stories that we're about to hear from you. I can't wait to get to them. But let's start right at the back of the beginning, because uh, you've got Brooklyn roots, haven't you? Well, growing up in Brooklyn was a good time. They had a lot of shows called, um, I think Murray VK put them on, before the, actually before the Beatles played. It's one of the first rock shows I ever went to. It was the Ronettes, a little Stevie Wonder. Little Stevie was 14. And the Dovells, I don't know if anybody knows where they are. And that was one of my first rock shows. And that's when I decided after that, probably a couple of years later, after driving cross country to California mm -hmm. and realized that New York was in black and white and California was in color. Uh, I realized when I got back to New York, I wanted to be a musician. I gave up a baseball career wow. or rather I had a scholarship to go to play baseball, be on the New York Yankees. But that kind of dwindled when I saw the Beatles, like everybody else in the world. And uh, I decided, but I, I picked up real quickly had talent and Brooklyn was a great place. A lot of musicians were there and there's a, and all the uh, Italian kids in my neighborhood, somehow they had basements. I lived in an apartment building. They had basements. We can set up, play ping pong and rehearse. So that's one of my, that started my career, but you can ask me questions and I'll uh, follow up on that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the baseball thing. I mean, having a scholarship, that, that must have meant that you were a very good player indeed. I was a good player. Certainly growing up, it seemed like a natural for me to do it. It wasn't like I worked on it or anything, but as I got older and I realized that there's a, there's a long path to getting professional and with music coming on, I remember my last uh, team game, that's when Sergeant Pepper came out and somebody was playing on the radio. I heard that. I go, okay, gotta go. <laughs> and, and plus all the great music that was coming out at that time anyway. And I got in the band pretty quick, luckily. And, you know, I figured, to be a drummer, I couldn't, which I, I love drums, and I couldn't because I live in an apartment. And then uh, to play lead guitar was impossible unless I put in time, and then rhythm guitar was boring. But I love bass because you had McCartney and James Jamerson and 
all the and bass was coming into prominence then. And John Edwistle was one of my heroes. And I loved The Who. Well, one of the first bands I saw was The Who. Yeah. Uh, it was before they uh, they, they st- uh, turned it over to Phil Maurice. And one of the first shows I saw with the Yardbirds with Jimmy Page. Going, wow, this is amazing. And then The Who was my one of my favorite bands. And I saw them. And, and that was the start of my uh, learning about music and Jefferson Airplane were there the following week. And all the, Bill Graham was a genius. Because they had blues groups. Uh, Joan Baez played there, Richie Havens. You had the acoustics thing going on. And then you had some of the hard rock, especially seeing The Who and Jimi Hendrix there and uh, among many. It was a good start. Incredible stuff. Somebody once told me, as long as they give you a round trip ticket, wherever they want you to go, go, right? So I said, okay. So I got a chance to go to Boston. And that's when Aerosmith was forming and Modern Love. It was a really good music scene. Stayed there for a while, and then an uh, American guitar player called me and said he had a record deal uh, and a rich factor in England, so I went to live in England for two years. Mm-hmm. And the music scene in England was pretty cool from 73 to 75. And a lot of glam rock going on, and uh, uh, at that time, Mike Chapman, great producer, and he was writing a lot of songs with his partner for Slade and Susie Quattro. And so I lived there for a while. We uh, came back to audition drummers in America in the middle of me living in England. And Bruce Gary was one of the drummers we auditioned, but he ended up going to England to play with Jack Bruce. <laughs> so it's like, you know, one of those, like, oh, crap, man. Anyway, so uh, I came back to L.A. after England, basically, to play with Bruce for a moment in some other project. Then he went back to England, is what I was trying to say. He got me a ticket to come back from uh, England. So so I was do- playing in a few different bands in L.A., you know, checking them out. Nothing was really happening at that time for me. So anyway, one day I get a call from Bruce Gary saying he's been playing with Doug Feigenberg and Burden of Air, doing demos, and they want to put a live group together. And, you know, I had kind of Paul McCartney vibe at that time. Really, you know, <laughs> and uh, I had the chops of John Whistle, sort of. Went down and had a first rehearsal, and I knew this was different than any other band I'd been in. Playing with Bruce Gary is one reason, but Doug was a, a, and Burton were great songwriters, and there was an energy to it. And, and, and uh, I felt, okay, this might be good. We did an audition for Casablanca Records at the time, they weren't sure between Kiss and Donna Summer, you know, we didn't really fit. So um, we, we just said, okay, we played the Whiskey A Go-Go June 1st, 1978. And that's when we all decided we were going to be a band. And that started our uh, assault on the L.A. scene. Now, there's a lot of stories in retrospect saying that the Knack was a product of Capitol Records investment. That basically they saw us and they promoted us and then finally we got the record deal it was all their master plan to make the new Beatles you know just a lot of things written no we played we played every club every show and we started generating uh, audiences based on the quality of the live group it was a great live band and that's one of the reasons I always say we weren't one hit wonders we were one take wonders because basically most of the recording we did it was all one take in the studio so in, anyway, we're doing the L.A. scene for a while. Mike Chapman came down and heard us. He was one of the producers. We might be interested. And he just said, I love you guys. Let's do a live album kind of, you know. Uh, so we, we did the scene. Now in L.A. as well, we had the, the knack, in other words, to attract uh, a lot of musicians. Now at the time, there wasn't a lot of jamming. Uh, you know, there was with established groups. But, you know, one week we were jamming with Eddie Money. Yeah, he yeah. came up on stage. We did two tickets for Paradise. Then... Um, Tom Petty came down. We did Mona and Not Fade Away. Now, Bruce had a connection to Bruce Springsteen. So what we did was invite people up if they were there, which was kind of rare, but we knew our musicianship was really good. So he played with us, which really got a lot of buzz in the music scene. Uh, later on, we had Ray Manzara came up. He was another friend of Bruce's, and we wow. did a couple of Doors songs. So in other words, we were getting cred as musicians, as well as a great live band. And nobody associated the Beatles with us yet. <laughs> and as we, we kept playing Capitol Records, one of the first people to come down to see us play, and they really liked the music, they liked the energy. Pretty much all the record companies were bidding for us at the time, and we felt that Capitol was probably the most uh, family for us. You know, it felt like family because all the people saw us, even though we we're offering a million dollars by Polygram. Wow. 
which was a lot, but we figured if you if you get a million, you owe a million, <laughs> right? And we had brains. We've been around longer. You know, we were seasoned musicians at the time. Yes. We weren't some kids that just, hey, man, we're cool, you know? It, it was more than that. So we figured now Capital fell, right? We signed with Capital. So it wasn't that they made us Capital. We chose them. Now, the logo on the album was Doug Gunn. We want to get, like, the old logo on the album. The front cover was not it's supposed to be Meet the Beatles. A good friend of mine, Randy St. Nicholas, who was transitioning into photography, who ended up becoming a wonder great photographer, you know, as a result of her own talents and did a couple of books with Prince and you can look at Whitney Houston, everybody and BJ, she's the best. So she was a shooting, it wasn't planned to be anything. I just mentioned that because the back cover was Doug doing a play on the American release of an album called Something New, which had them at, 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 at like a TV studio. So that was kind of Doug's like tongue in cheek Beatle thing. That started a little bit of the trend, but nobody at that time ever saw us play. We were more like the Who, more like the Kinks, you know, hard edged, you know? Phenomenal. And just talking about the, the recording of that first album then, Get the Knack. I mean, you spoke about Mike Chapman there. I mean, it it, it was days, wasn't it, that you were in the studio? It was a, it was a really quick process. Well, yeah, pretty much. Well, here's the chronological uh, timeline for us. We, when we started recording, it's a studio called MCA Whitney, where Mike liked doing a lot of recordings. So Blondie had just started, and they were working on Heart of Glass. And Mike actually co-wrote some of it. So we cut all the basic tracks, mastered the album, and they were still working on Heart of Glass, <laughs> which means Mike is a perfectionist. But we cut the album, had it mastered within a month, which was record time. We probably spent maybe 18,000 on the recording and maybe 3,000 on wine. Doug liked <laughs> fine, fine wine. But it was straight. There were no groupies. It was, it was just Mike. We come in and Mike goes, okay, let's do it. In, in other terms, Sharona was one of those songs where Mike just says, okay, let's do run through, right? Yep. We go, okay. So he goes, play like you're playing to an audience, you know? Okay. So he played Sharona as a run through. You know, most people do a run through and then they do a take and then do another one. We played it through. And Mike goes, okay, can we, let's, uh, let's move on. He goes, what do you mean? He says, we got it. He got what? He just ran it through. He goes, nope. He says, we got it. it uh, we went in there and go, well, it's pretty good. We didn't know the difference between, um, let's say, a, 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 how can you explain it? It wasn't, there were no mistakes because technically we were really good. But there was a thing, Mike, the freshness. Sometimes when you record, when you do a song five, six, seven times, it loses its uh uh, innocence. Mike caught it the first time through. Burton uh, jumped a couple of leads because he, you know, played rhythm on the basic track, and then Doug fixed a couple of uh, notes. That was it. And Mike said, "Let's move on." So pretty much, we did three, four songs a day, basic tracks. And Mike loved it that we were prepared. It wasn't that we were better than anybody else, but some other groups like to perfect it in the studio, and some groups would take months in the studio. You know. But we figured if Mike said it was good, it was good. Mike was the only one to say that Sharona was number one single. I was going to say that I did see an interview with him where he said he, the first time he heard it, he, he stopped you guys and said, look, that's a number one. Yeah. And I wrote it in my journal. I said, Mike Chapman says <laughs> Capital didn't release any singles. They released the album. And at the time we were in Europe playing some you know, shows. And then we, we heard that you know the record was released first, that it was people Sharona was the most requested song in America. And then the next week we played Liverpool. And the first time we ever heard a Knack song was across from where the Beatles played, the cavern, it was Eric's place. We're in a pub and they played Good Girls Don't. And then we thought, well, how do we get to here where the Beatles played? We're hearing our song on the radio. So that was one of those wonderful moments of wow, we, you know, we made whatever we made. Didn't make it, but we made it, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we, anyway, we heard that it was the most requested song in America. The great thing about that was not releasing the single. The album went to number one first mm -hmm. for a few weeks, and people got to hear the whole album. See, after the, you know, because Sharon was such a huge hit, a lot of people maybe would have been discouraged to hear the whole album, you know, back in the day. Even, and Sharon was the sec first song in the second side, it wasn't the first song in the first side, yep. which is, you know, how people do things back then. Sequencing was a big deal. Mm -hmm. 
the radio loved it and we came back and we, and we couldn't believe it actually the uh interest for the album and the single and it was number one so that was a good indication of at least we're heading in the right direction right <laughs> you could say that and robin hilburn was a big uh, film uh, uh, music critic in la uh they did a cover story on us but what they did was they had get the neck like on top and meet the beatles reversed on the bottom so he started making this connection to the beatles the only song that sounds like the beatles was maybe tonight had the backwards mm -hmm. drums but for some reason, that's when critics started comparing us to the Beatles, which you never wanted to have happen. So how did you feel at that point? I mean, you guys are an, an, a fresh band and, and you're just breaking through. And to be labeled with, with something like that and compared with the greatest band of all time, it's, it's, that's difficult, isn't it? Well, it, it, it was fantasy for a while. We did realize the fact of the huge power of the single. And then the image, they go Capitol Records, people started to assume that we were manufactured, which didn't, you know, as one of us, no, guys, we, we, we did the work, you know, nobody gave us a credit card to buy our success, literally. That bothered me a little bit. Then came the backlash because we did our album for so cheap. Other bands were expected to do the album as cheap. If then I can do an album for 17,000, why are you guys in the studio for three months? Then we got a little bit of blowback from musicians going, fuck the knack, man. You know, we, we're expected to do something we, we didn't expect to do. That makes any sense, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, so even though there was a camaraderie, there was a little bit of isolation because they, they had a pressure we didn't have. So, and then we came back and we did our U.S. tour and, and we ended with Australia and Japan, which is fantastic, you know? Arriving in New Zealand, New Zealand and saying we're number one, <laughs> in New Zealand, it was like, we're number one in New Zealand. It was great. I like New Zealand. It was a trip, right? <laughs> Fantastic and, uh, stuff. And we, we, you've mentioned you've mentioned Sharona. I mean, we, we've got to touch on it, haven't we? Um, thank God that the, the girl wasn't called Jill or Edna or Doris or something like that. Well, it could have been Peggy Sue, but, you know. <laughs> or, well, it, it was interesting because, well, Sharona, first of all, is a, is a very common name in Israel. It's the same as Sharon. But Sharona was like an odd thing to people. I don't know why it was Sharona. So people would go, what, you know, I mean, a few years ago, uh, somebody asked me, said, so what's your Sharona? An interviewer. I go, well, it vibrates. I'm sorry. He goes, what? And I go, yeah, it vibrates. Okay. So a, because of the song's success, there's that weird kind of mystery what it's about. And if you know the lyric, it's certainly about a girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's typical rock and roll lyric. We would call misogynists. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Now, if Led Zeppelin or, you know, other people, let's say, did a s songs that we accuse of massage, it would just be guys writing about girls. But for some reason, there was like somebody, some woman said, they're misogynist. I'm going, how does that happen? Look at all the other songs out there, right? Now, that was a little bit of blowback we got. Um, the U.S. tour went wonderful. And, okay, so we came back to L.A., everything's great. Now, we hadn't done the American TV yet. We had done TV in every country. You know, we did Top of the Pops. We did everything. Yeah. Our manager and Doug figured we had to do the right show. So Don Kirshner's rock concert, Midnight Special, uh, we didn't do. And even now when I'm watching, you know, YouTube clips of them, why didn't we do it? Dick Clark, who... One of us would be an American bandstand, right? 
we didn't do it. And he actually had a treatment to do a movie saying we were the new whatever we were supposed to be. We didn't do American Bandstand, even though we could have. And we were offered that. Remember Mork and Mindy, the big show? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. We were offered to appear as maybe from another planet. So <laughs> all those things would have made us more a household name. None of that happened. So in a way, we had the picture, we get the knack. We had uh, some radio interviews, but not having American TV was insane because we had so many opportunities. I think that, and there was no MTV till a year later. So we could have been much more acceptable as personality. So whose decision was that then? Because I've read before that the fact that the Knack didn't do too many interviews, especially in America, and that kind of went against you with the critics as well, didn't it? Whose, whose decision was that? Well, John Peel did a thing on us. He came on a tour bus and we did an American tour and interviewed Doug. And Doug was very smart, and I think he had a chip on his shoulder. So I think sometimes in interviews he might have been a bit negative, and perhaps that maybe not at the right time to be condescending. Mm-hmm. Not of us, but just the music scene. And so that started to get a little bit of a negativity. Our manager felt we were great together on interviews. We were, in a way, we played off. We were very funny, intelligent. Yeah. It, it really worked, but a lot of people didn't get that. When Doug started being more prominent, it became more focused on his vision of who we were than who we were, you know, and his own issues maybe came up. So that's where, in a way, we wanted to limit it. As far as decision making, I think our manager felt we had to do something extraordinarily special because we're off at all these shows, even though that's stupid, we're just a rock and roll band. Right. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing those things, we didn't, we didn't do. And that caused a bit of a thing where who do they think they are, which contributed to the snobbery. The biggest mistake we ever made, I feel we had two Grammy nominations, best song and best new artist. I wanted to be invited to the Grammy Awards all my life, let alone being nominated. So we had this chance to go back to Japan, play Budokan and do this big tour. And for some reason, Doug and our manager says, well, you know, it's an award show, right? No big deal. And I was crestfallen because if we had played My Sharon Alive, because we're a great band, that would have cemented us into American culture. Well, we didn't. Went to Japan, it was a bad time to tour. And the night of the Grammys, we were in a snowstorm up in Sapporo, Japan, going, what the F? And we lost. Ricky Lee Jones won Best New Artist. And that was like the start of what are we doing here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we, anyway, the second album was also a problem. Should I go on to the second album? Yeah, carry on. Yeah. Now, Capital wanted to release another two singles. But for some reason, again, Doug, after talking to Scott, thought we should do a second album because we had enough material that wasn't on the first album. And, and Doug sometimes would say later on that like, um, we were gonna do a double album, but Capital said we should do a single album. That's not true. We did a single album because that was the best material. Yeah. If you know what I mean? But um, now we had Mike Chapman do the second album. And Mike was not the Mike we knew because he was going through a divorce. So Mike wasn't, wasn't quite as jubilant, as wonderful, and they, I felt bad about that. Mike gave it his best, but I knew if he had a say, he wouldn't have put the album out. Also, Doug had Sharona come into the studio as well. I guess Sharona with Yoko comes to mind. Now, Sharona was great. We all loved her. But with the success, Doug started bringing Sharona with him places because she got attention. Yeah. So um, that caused a little bit of a riff in the studio. You know, Doug was getting his romantic rock and roll fantasy happening. I wish I had a girlfriend who can come, you know, be that. <laughs> Write a song about. It was, she was great. But, you know, let's say the enthusiasm was dissipated by that and Mike's situation. And I never felt, did you hear Baby Talk Sturdy, right? Yeah. Well, lyrically was a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Because Doug and in the mind were going to be the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, sort of, right? You can't be that. And when I read the lyric, I go, no, you're doubling down on misogyny. You're talking about S&M crap, right? Yeah. That was me. And I argued with the manager. And I said, we're going to have a problem. And believe it or not, it was in England, they censored it. Mm-hmm. This is the lyric. If, if you know some of the lyric, you get it. Japan was great because they got all the words wrong. <laughs> so nobody knew what the song was about. <laughs> so... I felt that, first of all, everybody, you can't underestimate 
the power of my Sharona. If you're going to have a follow-up single, it better be better, if not as good. Capital wasn't even sold on rushing a new album because they wanted to do two more singles. So that started the decline, actually, because the critics were waiting literally with gun pens, pretty much. They're ready to shoot us. We gave them everything they needed to fulfill their prophecy. Yeah, they're one-hit wonders. Now, by the way, Good Girls Done was the top 10. People, a lot of people never mentioned that song. Yeah, yeah. And number one I in mean, Canada as well, wasn't it? Yeah, Canada did very well. And some other countries, you never expected to do mm-hmm. well. But I was really proud of that song too, you know? And uh, so that started the, uh, the the blowback. And there was a guy who invented something called Nuke the Knack. <laughs> you ever hear of that? Yes, I did, yeah. There was pins uh, and T-shirts and everything. Yeah, he wanted to make money, right? I don't blame him. So uh, Bruce and I used to go to uh, a record swap meet that had Capitol Records in the, in the lot. One time we were there, I think, right after we got back from our tour, and the guy was there. And we said, hey, what's going on? He says, yeah, I guess it's going to buy one of those. So they got a picture with me and Bruce where I'm yep. making that. We thought it was great. Or, or honk if you slept with your owner, right? <laughs> so that was a good one. So I didn't mind the backlash. What I didn't like was the fact that the pressure that we created for ourselves ended up setting us up for failure and and i can't couldn't blame mike for not trusting his instincts and saying no don't put out that song because you everybody wants to hear another my sharona and if it's anything less you guys are going to get you know whacked literally talking about the the difficulties when the the second album came around then so uh, album number three came after you, you broke up and then you got back together tell us the story around that then okay so um after the second album came out. Well, first of all, it came out with a lot of hype. The album entered the charts. It was in the 40s. Baby Talk Sturdy entered the charts high, only because of the hype. But immediately people were going, that's no my Sharona. Which again, you can't, with a success like that, you can't assume that people are not going to compare it. I don't understand why our manager at the time did not take that stand. Yeah. So, um, and we were in Japan when it came out, and we're not here promoting it. We get back here, everybody's getting pretty depressed at the time. Of course we were. The only thing we looked forward to was, the, again, we've been playing the clubs all that time. So we got back to L.A., and all of a sudden, we're playing the Forum, which is, you know, 18,000 seater, and we sold it out in three hours. Wow. So all the fans that were loyal, and that was one of the best shows we ever played, I believe. And we ended with We Love You too as an encore we love that stone song of course right yes but that was the high point at that it was just apart from the album failing right this was in march of 1980 and after that it was like okay what are we going to do now then doug started to feel like well you know maybe i'll go in a different direction uh, now we're you know you're not capital wanted another album and then there was some fix- friction with bruce our drummer so we kind of had it so that's when we had our first kind of breakup and Doug was, uh, I think, isolating himself. He had his Sharona. Yep. So they can split off a bit and he could be more of a, uh, a matinee attraction with Sharona. Oh, look, there they are. <laughs> but it was cool. So we were pretty well split. Doug wanted to do a new album. If Bruce didn't want to do it, we'll go on without him. And then John's assassination. I mean, it was so devastating. I mean, nobody could believe it. And I called Doug and I said, hey, what's, you know, how are you? Can I see you or something? So he said, yeah. So I went over and, you know, we got through the talk and I said, so why don't we play again? He, he goes, yeah, we, we should. So Burden was down and Bruce was cool too. Because we were all like going, what the hell happened? Mm-hmm. And after tossing a few producers around, we all said, if Jack Douglas want, you know, Doug, of course, because the John Lennon thing, right? Yep. But if Jack Douglas is at all interested, sure. So he knew who he were when he said, yeah. <laughs> and he came to L.A. He was still in a lawsuit with Yoko, and which was distracting at times. We'd disappear for hours on the phone. Back then, there were no cell phones, but a big, you know, <laughs> wherever he was on. But that album was masterful. And I, lo- I love Jack for doing that. That's the best album we ever played on the, the range of musicianship but again it wasn't the right commercial so after that 
we did a few uh we went to europe we did a few things you know eurovision yeah. big show and then there was some like thing with you know doug wanted to go see jim morrison's grave and i go why do you want to do that <laughs> i've been just i don't know i mean there's a picture of it but he was starting to he felt more like a lead singer than he did a group member and i think that was where we figured okay well this ain't working so so that was it we call it quits then and then myself, Burden, and Bruce was putting a new group together with an actor named Stephen Bauer. Stephen Bauer was in, you know, Scarface, one of his first movies, right? Yeah. And he had great charisma and he was awesome. He wasn't a great singer, though, but he was great, right? <laughs> so we figured uh, we got a record deal off of from Virgin. But unfortunately, our manager ended up in jail for uh, being involved in some, one of those L.A. weird kind of scenes with drugs and debutantes, you know, I mean actor's daughter so to speak i knew nothing about it so he was trying to negotiate a deal from jail for virgin records but we said nah maybe not <laughs> we could have got a deal so we did nothing for a while we got a chance to play for a benefit for a promoter in la we got back together for that then we said hey you know maybe you should try to play together again you know which was cool because all the all the animosity we had was kind of spelled out at that point mm -hmm. i think you know we cut a demo um, with somebody named Val Gray. Very, he had Kim Carnes at the time okay. producing. And it wasn't a good match, but we cut some demos. We did a TV show, uh, kind of a weird one. Why would we do a TV show then and not <laughs> earlier? Yeah. And we didn't really have great material. And we kind of like, uh, we tried it with Bruce again. There were problems. So that didn't work. So we replaced Bruce with somebody named, well, first we replaced him with Pat Torpy, who ended up playing with us later on. Pat ended up leaving us to join a Mr. Big, yep. which was a wonderful progressive rock band, you know. And we had to get another drummer. We got Billy Ward, a New York drummer. And that's when we, uh, Doug called Don was a friend of his. And Don was really building his reputation as a great producer. And this is 90 we started. So he was our producer for the album. And the sound, we had a, uh, I don't know if you know that song, Rocket of Love. Yes, yeah, yeah. First track on the album. It was, yeah. it was an FM hit. It, you know, it was top 10. And it was a great song. And um, we were signed to Charisma Records. And Charisma were a new, nabel, uh, new label, so to speak, from Virgin. And uh, as we did a video for that song and getting ready to tour with different management, you know, Charisma folded. So even though we did the video, they never got the push we needed. Never got a chance to do a second single. So we get an FM success. The musicianship was great. Don did a great album. And apart from Rocket of Love, it's probably the only album Don was did not have a platinum album. Sorry, Don. <laughs> but he, he loved the band. So again, after that, we said, what are we? So we toured. Because of reality bites, sure, it was reality bites. Yeah, of course. Which, Can I just ask you a quick question, story? if you don't mind? Um, with, with serious fun, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times about the misogyny that was, that was that was put your way and things like that. In terms of serious fun, I mean, the album cover itself, um, with with the schoolgirl on the front. I mean, whose decision was that then? I can see you covering your eyes. What what was what was the decision behind that? Well, the, well, first of all, serious fun was a good idea. You know, the, the idea of the contrast, right? It wasn't my idea. But when you really look at it out of context, the girl with a hula hoop on fire, is kind of brilliant, actually. The video, it's got a girl riding a rocket. Hello. <laughs> but that's a bit misogynist, too. But at that point, because we weren't that famous or popular, the misogyny wasn't a big deal anymore. Right? Because on the album, my favorite song was Serious Fun. Because the lyric is all about reading and it's, it's fantastic. So Rocket of Love got us notoriety. We did a tour because of reality bites. Came back to LA again to figure it out what are we going to do. But um, after the serious fun, we took a pause again. We did we did some demos and more, and it wasn't right. And then uh, we started playing with Bruce again. And then we started writing different. Doug was going to do a solo album, and. Um, you know, we weren't that enthusiastic about it. We got a new manager named Danny Sugarman. Now, Danny was the Doors manager for a while, wrote a book about the Doors. And he came and boy, he said, look, guys, we, you know, why don't you write new songs? He said, Doug was good, 
but we won that song. So first time myself, Bird and the Doug started writing together. And I did a song called Harder On You. We, I think that album Zoom has some of the best songs we've written. Now, interestingly enough, Bruce was causing some problems. We said, Bruce, what are we going to do? And he was problems at the time. So we started figuring who we're going to play drums with. And, uh, and Doug said he met Terry Bozio, and Terry Bozio was interested. And I'm going, okay. I didn't ever think that Terry Bozio. <laughs> I mean, I knew for missing persons and everything, but I had no idea because he was playing with Jeff Beck and all these. But he liked rock and roll. So we gave Bruce a chance, and Bruce didn't respond. And so Terry Bozio, we did that album called Zoom. So anyway, we did a, a short tour. We went with Rhino Records and they didn't promote the album because they didn't know how to promote a new album. They did the greatest hits with us too. And as the tour went on, um, you know, it was like obvious that, uh, well, maybe this wasn't right. So we got to play in Detroit. Well, three days later, Doug got laryngitis in the middle of a tour. He was screwed up. Terry got bronchitis. The tour was over in a week. So then after that, we broke up again, by the way. It was a really good album. Anyway, just saying that's kind of it. So that led to that other time period of nothing. We changed drummers again. Then we got back together for uh, Tony from Smile Records got a hold of us. We signed to do an album deal. And that's when we did the Fun House, and uh, not Fun House, 2001, House of Blues to launch that album, Normal is the Next Guy. Yeah. Uh, the album cover, well, you know, it wasn't my favorite. I didn't want to have look like an, an alien child. <laughs> With a green and haze. I never yeah. got it. And being a father, I go, I hope my kid didn't come out looking like that, you know, but free. And I don't know, but it was a good picture of us, which actually in the new release is a great group picture of us on the live album, not that picture. I, don't, I still don't know why. And it's all normal as the next guy, Doug did a rap on it, which was kind of cool. And the songs itself were not consistent. I have, it's not me, it's my, one of my favorites. Um, uh, maybe one other one, uh, just two others, which were pretty good. But, you know, it wasn't really a knack album. Doug, some of the songs Doug had written was for an album with somebody else. So we ended up using those. So uh, anyway, after the, uh, that thing we did with uh, Tony and we, we broke up again for a while because we didn't know what we we're going to do, you know? Um, so we got interest for, um, from different people like, going, well, why don't you do the knack thing? You know, just because we should. So now Pat Torpy, who had played with us earlier on for that brief period, you know, he was available. We got a chance to go to Japan and start touring again. We didn't have an album to tour from, but it was a lot of interest. So we got back together and uh, we got to tour Japan and, and do a lot of shows in, in, in the States. Pat was a great drummer. His vocals also helped out a lot too. So there's a thing called uh, World Tour Cafe. We did in Philadelphia, probably in 2000 something, six, six. That was a pretty good indication of where we were at that point. You know, we played with Pat. Uh, Doug got diagnosed for cancer. Uh, we were uh, now the odd thing was uh, Doug got diagnosed with cancer, like in we I think it was 2006 because he fought it for a while. At, around that time, Bruce Gary, I uh, got a call from somebody who was very good friends with him that he was in the hospital. He didn't take he had not non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but he didn't do any chemo treatments. He didn't want to go that route. So on one hand, I was saying goodbye to Bruce. On the other hand, Doug was fighting it. It was very strange at the time, you know. Um, so Doug managed to keep going, you know. He got a lot of chemo treatments and he had improvement. And then he, he, he regressed. So he did get four years of playing with Doug throughout the, uh, uh, his cancer. So he really fought and he did pretty, pretty amazing, you know. So Doug passed away on Valentine's Day in 2010. And, and um, leading up to that, I had been playing, there's YouTube clips of myself playing Sharona with my kids. Um, Gabe, great drummer, and 
And my daughter, Liv, became a great lead guitar player. And, and Noah was playing guitar as well. Liv just had a gift for it. She was a late, late starter. So the night Doug passed away, um, I was, a, I was a, a judge on a show in L.A. about, um, it was like an offshoot of The Voice, you know. It was like amateur, you know, performers playing, and you vote to who wins, right? So in tribute to Doug, we did Sharona that night, and Leif Garrett sang it, by the way, which was pretty trippy, you know? And uh, that's on YouTube as well. So there's clips of, of playing Sharona with them, with uh, the Nelsons, by the way. There's a great clip of doing Sharona with him. And, um, you know, Gabe can really play the drum parts, my, my son Gabe, you know? So we, and he's also fills in on Missing Person shows. So it's, it's very cool to play my Sharana with my son, you know? Pleasure chatting with you, and uh, best of luck with Missing Persons and best of luck with the band, as well, your, your kids' band. Thank you so much for doing it. And I hope to play in Scotland one day. Yes, absolutely, and I'll be, I'll be there to watch you. Prescott Niles there. I hope you did enjoy that interview. As I said, very open and honest about events and people within the band and situations they found themselves in. He's still working with uh, missing persons. And as he was saying, his children have a group too called Gateway Drugs. So definitely go and check them out. Right, it's the time of the show for the top fives and a chance to offer up my top five songs from The Knack. But first, let's reflect on last week's choice, Black Sabbath, thanks to my interview with the second longest serving Sabbath singer, Tony Martin. Please do go back and check that one out if you haven't done so already. Great stories about Tony Iommi and Cozy Powell, Eddie Van Halen and playing behind the Iron Curtain and much more as well. Definitely recommended. Anyway, you've been commenting on my choices, which were War Pigs at number one, two was Paranoid, three Heaven and Hell, four Fairies Wear Boots, and five Supernaut. And you were offering up your own choices too. Sammy Peterman agreeing with me on War Pigs as the best, uh, as did Indispensable Music and Media on Twitter. Pat Power agreed with a couple of my choices with Ronnie Dio's Heaven and Hell as his number one. Not surprisingly, Iron Man got a few shouts to be included in the top five. I missed it off my list. Uh, they came from likes of Bob Nemechek and Louis Rodriguez Aliaga, while Paul Graham said that would be his walk-on entrance theme tune if he ever needed one. Uh, Eduardo Perez on Twitter offered up a great list headed by Wheels of Confusion, which was also in the top five of fellow Twitter user Tim Tyrrell, whose list was headed by Hole in the Sky. Mike Norris's list was topped by Planet Caravan, which is another great song, while Andy Old tried to list top five, but uh, he ended up with about ten on there, as, as he said he couldn't leave any out. Thanks to uh, everybody who's in touch with their choices. I love seeing how your lists differ to mine and what tracks we agree on as well. Common Consensus definitely rallied around my number one, though, War Pigs, with that track being the most chosen from everyone's lists combined. Anyway, that was last week's, so now for today's list. Now remember, this is my personal favourite list. It's the songs I enjoy the most. It's subjective, so it's okay for you to disagree. So here we go. My favourite five songs from The Knack, according to the Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track I'm guessing most people would expect to be much higher. It's an upbeat track and was a big hit from their debut album. At five is Good Girls Don't. Good Girls Don't, At four is a song from their third album, Round Trip. It's another beaty, upbeat, rousing number sticking to their tried and tested subject matter of girls and boys. And number four is Boys Go Crazy. is their big song from their comeback in 1991. It went top 10 on the mainstream rock chart in the US. It's a much more powerful sound than the raw stripped-back feel of earlier albums, with Doug's vocals more in keeping with that kind of late 80s, early 90s rock vibe. At three is Rocket of Love. is a track that will probably hardly ever get a mention to be honest but it's a really good song it's got a really groovy beat to it with great drumming as well and a brilliant solo from Burton who's an underrated guitarist it's another track from their third album Round Trip and number two is Africa it's just got to be you can't be sure till you open up the door 
And at number one is the song you would expect it to be. It couldn't be anything else, really, could it? Written about a real girl who Doug became infatuated with, and then they became a couple. It's also the actual Sharona on the cover of the single two she's pictured, which many people didn't know that at the time. My favourite, the Knack song, and the number one on my list is the biggest selling single in the US in 1979. It is, of course, My Sharona. There you go, my favourite five songs from The Knack. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Where do you agree or disagree? Let me know your top fives. Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, and I'll give you a mention on next week's episode. Now, if this is your first listen to The Vintage Rock Pod, then please make sure to follow or subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss any new episodes that drop. They usually come out every Monday. And please do go back and check out the back catalogue of incredible big-name guests as well. It was fun listening to Prescott mention certain bands he'd worked with or seen live when he was younger, many of whom I've had on the series before, like... Yama Kalkinen from Jefferson Airplane, The Who's Kenny Jones, and, and many others as well. It's definitely worth checking out the back catalogue of interviews here on the Vintage Rock Pod, with 13 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers included. Anyway, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, then. Until episode 56, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.